Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions, I think, on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. It's a whole new world of diplomacy and maybe of monetary policy. So what difference will it make? This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Bank of America Chairman and CEO Brian Moynihan has been a leader in bringing private industry together to establish standards for the environmental, social and governments, working with both the World Economic Forum and with His Royal Highness Prince Charles. It was in that capacity that he was invited to participate in the G7 summit in Cornwall last weekend. And we asked him about what happened there. His Royal Highness uh, Prince Charles for years, for four decades plus, has been focused on the environment. A few years and he's had various initiatives with business people and other groups over the years. A couple years ago, um, a, a group of us sat with him and talked about how we could get the private sector, really, who has to drive this change, aligned. And so he announced in early 2020 the Sustainable Markets Initiative, the SMI. That is 300 CEOs working as a you know, coalition of the willing to help uh, along industry groups, uh, to help share best practices, to help figure out how we can move things faster, to help promote public policy ideas that would be helpful. That SMI group, uh, through the leadership of His Royal Highness, was able to meet with the uh, G7 leaders for an engagement around, you know, the private sector's here. We don't need money. We, we are ready to move. We're moving fast. But if you did these types of policy implementations, we could move even faster. So I'm the leader of the group I co-chair with His Royal Highness. I had a chance to speak a bit. And then we had an interaction with the eight or nine CEOs were there with the G7 leaders to kind of make sure they understood that we're there to help them support to make this transition be a just transition and help have it help it happen. 
So I know that you've been heading up the International Business Council for the World Economic Forum. How does this fit with that? Because I know you're coming up with uniform standards. You've got quite a few companies to sign on to that so far. What kind of progress are you making? So the World Economic Forum uh, International Business Council, which uh, I've been chairing for the last couple of years uh, with a group of 130 CEOs or so, they adopted a set of metrics and 90 or so companies have signed up and we're pushing that through the system that basically align against the sustainable development goals the UN adopted in 2015 and frankly define stakeholder capitalism. And those, you know, people, place, planet and, and prosperity. And so on the environment, which links to this obviously, it, it's disclosure scope one, two, three, and what are you doing about it, things like that. So. One of the things we told the G7 leaders is you need convergence of metrics. And the IBC work led by the big four accounting firms bringing together the work and pushing for convergence with even the, the groups that support uh, metrics, SASB, GRI, et cetera. The idea is to push to one set of metrics. So we don't have all the work, as I said, that G7 leaders going into calculating things. We have the work going into actually making the metrics better. And so you, know, you have the SEC looking at these metrics, you have the IFRS looking at these metrics, the EU looking at these metrics, and then you have all the unofficial sectors. So the idea is to push the metrics together, get the standard set of metrics. That's what the IBC did, and that feeds directly into the SMI because those are the metrics the SMI believes should be adopted by companies around the world to show they're making progress on the SDGs. Ryan, you studied this so carefully, you understand it well. As a practical matter, will we get where we need to go without the governments adopting those metrics? Can the private sector do it on its own? Well, I, I, I think the important thing is the private sector has the money. So if you think about the calculation of what the sustainable development goals cost per annum is about six trillion. So charity you know, is a trillion plus a year. It's wonderful. Think about all that money people are giving away to help things, but it's a trillion. If you look at all the foundations and one of the debates in the world is why all these foundations just don't give away all their money tomorrow, well, that gets you through about a, a third of a year to also. If you look at governments are running huge deficits because of the pandemic, they can only do so much. The private sector has trillions of dollars of market cap, trillions of dollars, of, you know, many trillions of dollars of market cap, many trillions of dollars of balance sheet, but importantly, many trillions of dollars of operating expenses. So how they operate in their company and how they buy services including electricity and power and things like that, can move markets. And that's why the private sector has to lead it. Innovation, innov uh, and it, when the private sector leads it, it becomes capitalism. When capitalism has it, it'll keep sustaining itself. And so that's, that's the sort of intellectual thought process. Can the private sector do it on its own? Absolutely not. This is going to take everybody. But I'll use a specific example, David, sustainable aviation fuels. If there's a mandate for 10% in, you know, in, in, in the world, you will then get an instant market that can, people can build the plants to produce into. It works today. It's going in planes today. But until there's a, more of a requirement, it becomes, you know, uh, country by country, region by region, very hard. The airlines are in. They're doing it already. And the question is, we could create much more stable markets. And then the private sector could provide all the financing, all the stuff, because they know the market's going to be there. That's how the a policy and a private market can work in tandem to make something happen. Right. One of the things that the G7 took up over there was that to propose global minimum tax that would have to go to the G20 and then the OECD would have to go through Congress. Uh, have you taken a hard look, I'm sure you have, at what effect that would have on Bank of America and perhaps as important, more important, your customers if it went through? Well, banks, as you know, David, are pay a lot, a lot of taxes, so we have very little shelter. So the only reason why our tax rate's not the exact tax rate in a place like the United States has more to do with the uh, investments we make in low and moderate income housing in, in sustainable uh, energy, wind, wind, solar, et cetera. That allows 
through the tax incentives to bring it down. But that's it. We don't have big you know, depreciation things other, com other companies do. So the banking system is always affected by taxes because they pay a lot of taxes, frankly. And it, it, that's, uh, that's the reality. Highest percentage of taxes paid and highest dollar amount in the U.S. The globalization of the 15% is really to try to get out of the what goes on in the U.S. and other countries, even within regions, is people bidding using a tax rate, and they're trying to put a floor in. That was Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan. Coming up, bubbles, bubbles everywhere. But are they really bubbles? And what does it look like if they pop? Rashir Sharma of Morgan Stanley puts some of what we're seeing now into an historical context and has some answers for us. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. It's hard to talk about investments these days without hearing the word bubble. We're getting towards the end of an asset bubble. Housing bubble warnings. Travel bubble, since we're talking about it. Is it a bubble or not? The bubble, I think, is the bond market. Creating these bubbles. But for all the talk, how can we tell what's a bubble and what's not? And what happens if it is a bubble and it bursts? Morgan Stanley's Rushir Sharma decided to go back in history, analyzing the 10 biggest bubbles over the last century. Everything from the U.S. stock market in 1929 to Chinese shares in 2015. And what they had in common was a price that rose 100 percent in the year before they peaked, with much of the gain packed into frenzied trading in the last few months, as day traders and other latecomers came rushing in. So if history is a guide, where do we see those traits today? We welcome back now to Wall Street Week, Rashir Sharma, the man who's done this work on the history of bubbles. He is the chief global strategist for Morgan Stanley Investment Management and author of the book, The Ten Rules of Successful Nations. Fascinating study you did, but take us through it a bit. You went back over 100 years, the 10 biggest bubbles. What were the things that you found in common about these bubbles? Yeah, David, there's so much chatter in the market about bubbles, but yet what exactly is a bubble? How do you define a bubble? is subject to much speculation itself and subjectivity. So what I did was to look at the 10 biggest bubbles uh, of the past century and see what were the common features here. And some uh, objective characteristics were present in all the bubbles and some of it was obviously subjective. But the one common factor was this, that typically a bubble is a trend that has been going on for a while and in the final year, the final 12 months, you see a massive acceleration in that trend with prices increasing 
by typically 100% over a 12-month period, and a lot of the gains packed into the last few months of that 12-month period. So that is the most objective criteria of looking at any bubble. The more subjective one is that it's also accompanied by a lot of speculative activity, frenzied trading, uh, mass retail participation. Those are some of the other subjective criteria that go hand in hand. But a 100% increase in the price of any asset that has already been rising for a while, uh, but concentrated towards the end is one objective criteria that you can see in every single big bubble of the past century. Rushir, I think it's fair to say just about every week we're seeing some frenzied speculation someplace or the other, but applying your objective criteria, that 100% run up uh, up to the peak, uh, what do you see right now in the marketplace? Where do you see things that fit that those criteria? So I think if you look at both the objective and the subjective criteria, remember about a bubble is not just something about one stock rising. It's a concept. It's about the fact that everyone believes in some new, new thing that this concept is here to stay and about to change the world. So it is, uh, as I say, a good idea gone too far. So what is it in the marketplace today that we see, uh, which looks like a, bu a bubble? So I think that you see this in, in obviously some of the cryptocurrency space. We see this in uh, some of the clean energy stocks. We see this in some of the uh, SPACs. We see this in some of those Pandemic stocks, the small cap stocks, which have benefited a lot uh, because of the pandemic. And we also see this uh, in some of these tech companies that really have no earnings. Uh, you know, so there are various indices on Wall Street that define these uh, trends. Um, and these are what I call bublets. And I think that this is a slightly new concept. Bubbles are industrial. Uh, the entire market-wide, right? That you had the big bubble of 1929, you had the Chinese Asia bubble of uh, 2015, you've had the gold bubble of the 1970s, oil. Uh, th those are the really big market bubbles. But I think that one step below that is what I call bublets. These are not market-wide bubbles, but sector-specific bubbles. And what we have today is I don't think we have a market-wide bubble because the earnings have been very strong, but I think we do have sector-wide bubbles where you do not really have any earnings or any great uh, fundamental free cash flow for these companies, and yet you have massive run-ups on the back of the concept. So that, I think, is the important defining feature today and also differentiating feature today of the bubbles we have in the marketplace. Rushir, as you look at past bubbles uh, or bublets, uh, do you see situations where there's a correction that it resumes its rise up, or is there a correction that it resumes its, its fall down? That's a great point, David, and we looked at that specifically. And here's what I came up with, which is that if you look at most trends, nothing goes up in a straight line. Uh, it only seems so in uh, retrospect. But typically what we found was that you have drawdowns of around 20, 25%. Those do not classify as a break in trend. But once any of these trends decline by more than 35%, that usually marks the end of the bubble. That means the trend is broken. And they often want to decline as much as 70% from the peak over a two-year time horizon. So that is the broad template. And what uh, we see in the bubblets today is that most of them 
have declined by more than 35%. Uh, so that's what makes me feel that the trend is broken in many of these bubbles, and we may have further downside in the months, uh, if not quarters ahead. One of the big debates going on in all sorts of ways, including with inflation and other things right now, is is it different this time? And certainly it is different, at least in the, in the fact of a very rapid fall in the economy as we shut it down and then a very rapid rise. But it's also different in the degree of monetary and fiscal support for the economy. Could that make us have a different result when it comes to your bubblets? Yeah, it's entirely possible. You know, we have never had such an extraordinary um, uh, accommodation in monetary policy and uh, fiscal policy to go with it. There's one statistic I keep repeating, which is that 20% of all the dollars in circulation in the world were printed just last year. So that's an extraordinary amount of monetary accommodation. And even if you end up getting some hawkish no noises from the Fed and other central banks, to reverse that accommodation will mean a lot. So it's entirely possible that this uh, trend lasts longer and maybe the historical template doesn't follow this time. But I still feel the probability is skewed on the downside uh, because uh, these trends are very extended. We are getting some amount of less monetary accommodation. And so even though it could be different this time, and maybe some of these uh, uh, patterns don't apply to things like cryptocurrency on which I had been very bullish last year uh, because this is a new, new thing and this is still not something which people are used to. But I still feel broadly for these bubbles, uh, the trend is down and the risks are skewed to the downside. Okay, Rashir, thank you so much for your time today. That's Rashir Sharma of Morgan Stanley. Coming up, we take a look at the week ahead on Global Wall Street. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, where we used to know it, is investing $12 billion across its global business in an overhaul. And an important part of it has to do with PwC US, as it's really reorganizing the way it does business in a very different way. We welcome now Tim Ryan. He is PwC US chairman and senior partner. So, Tim, thank you for being here. Take us through what you're doing here, because it's, it's fascinating. It really reflects a fundamental redo of your professional services organization. What we did over the last couple of years is we try to look around the corner. A big thing our clients look for us is not just to tell them what's happening today, but to help them peek around the corner and see what's going to define the big issues over the next 10 years. And as we did that, it became very clear that the single biggest element of, from, in terms of opportunity and challenges our clients will have is gaining trust and maintaining trust where expectations are going up and the topics are becoming broader over the next 10 years and how companies balance profits and purpose, gain competitive advantage all across the globe. It's the issue that has led us to launching this new strategy, which is we call the new equation. Yeah, and Tim, I dare say, I think we saw some glimmers of that in the G7 meetings, actually, in the, in the Cornwall consensus, where nations now are reaching out. And they're not just dealing with geopolitical issues. They're dealing with health issues. They're dealing with, with equality and inclusion. Uh, so when you talk about trust, because as I understand, one of your divisions is going to be the trust, right, consultancy? What does that include? Yeah, so David, great point. What, what we saw very clearly, there's good news for business. The good news today is business is amongst the most trusted institutions in the world. But when we peek around the corner, what's clear is the bar is going up and the number of topics that businesses will be expected to be trustworthy on is widening. So 
For example, we see financial reporting, hugely important, tax reporting, hugely important. But what's going to happen over the next several years, it'll go to issues like ESG, like tax, like tax morality, like tax fairness, data protection, data security, how you treat your workers, worker pay. And we see the number of topics going broader where businesses need to be trusted on. We did see a glimpse of that at the G7, and we'll continue to see that more and more. And a big part of what we're trying to do is make sure we're ready to meet our clients' needs as we lead them into the future. So one of the things that we're doing is we're in the U.S. reorganizing our business, and we will have the largest trust solutions business in the world as one of our two major segments to help our clients meet these needs. It'll drive investment and where we drive our clients and work with them to help them succeed. Break that down in trust solutions as opposed to consulting solutions. What goes in each of those buckets? Great question. So what goes into trust solutions is first our legacy assurance business, which is hugely important and will continue to drive audit quality up. Our legacy tax reporting businesses, but also our very fast growing businesses such as ESG, diversity inclusion, governance, all goes in that business. Cybersecurity, where we look to drive more capabilities up, again, because they will define trust. In our consulting solutions business, it's our legacy advisory deals, consulting, and tax consulting businesses, because in order to give strategy to execution consulting, we need to make sure tax is at the table because it's so important to companies' future strategies as well. So that's what's in the two segments. Both will see significant investment in as we look to meet those needs of our clients. Tim, you brought up tax a couple of times now. That was one of the things addressed at the G7 with the proposal for a global minimum tax. I mean, you know this area terribly well. Give us a sense of where that's going. And particularly, you talked about tax fairness. I guess that's one of the arguments for it. Yeah, without a doubt, David. So when we look at what's happened all across the globe, virtually every major country has done a major stimulus package. They've used their balance sheets to guide their countries, their citizens through this incredibly crisis that we've seen. Ultimately, somebody has to pay for that as we study the trends, what's clearly going to be important is tax will be a critical element of that. It's critical to individual countries. It's also critical to the overall global tax system. So it's not it's not unreasonable. It's not a surprise that we're seeing things like a global minimum tax discussed. But what's equally important is each country will need their share as well to pay down their debt as they look to deal with those balance sheets. So we expect ongoing dialogue. And when I talk to CEOs, people understand that taxes will likely go up. They want to make sure it's fair, predictable, so they can plan for the long term. We'll see more and more of this as this plays out. I think the G7 was just the beginning. Uh, Tim, let me try to put together two subjects that I think would go into your trust category. Uh, on the one hand, diversity. Uh, and equity and inclusion, very much an issue on everyone's mind, and particularly U.S. business right now, and audits. Because one of the issues is racial audits. Uh, where do you come out on that? Do you have clients who are engaging that or are thinking about it, deciding not to do it? David, one of the things that gives me great optimism is I travel around, not now physically again, which is great, and virtually over the last year. As I speak with CEOs, what we're constantly hearing is a number of topics rise to the top of the list. I'm, I'm inspired by the fact that diversity and inclusion is on every CEO's minds. I'm inspired that I see ESG on the top of his minds, in addition to the digital cyber and those topics. What I see is that businesses trying to think, think about how they look forward. One of the big things we're doing as part of the new equation is we are launching a $300 million three-year commitment that we call Tomorrow Takes Trust. A big element of that is a trust institute where we will take 10,000 current and future C-suite executives to get them ready in the future 
as they need to deal with these complicated questions where we need to make progress as a business community. Yeah, a really fascinating repositioning of your company. Really appreciate you bringing it to us. That's Tim Ryan, he's PwC US Chairman and Senior Partner. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to conclude our week with Larry Summers, our special contributor from Harvard, as we do every week. So, Larry, welcome. Good to have you here. I have to ask you, do you feel vindicated? Uh, the Fed actually at least somewhat caught up with you, I think, this week in saying we do, after all, have to be concerned about inflation, transitory or otherwise. So are you feeling good today? David, uh, look, I, I think the Fed... Uh, signaled uh, that it recognized that we were in a different place than it had expected uh, on inflation. Uh, the best measure of that is if you look at what the market is now saying about real interest rates over the next few years, you saw an unprecedented or nearly not unprecedented, but close, but very large five standard deviation uh, move uh, in the market's expectation around real interest rates because of what the Fed signaled, principally with the dot plot. You saw that happening without the Fed changing in a major way its forecast of economic growth or its forecast of medium-term inflation, simply marking to reality its near-term inflation forecast. So I think you did see yesterday, see on Wednesday, a signal that the Fed had changed its reaction function uh, in a significant uh, way. I think that was an appropriate change uh, given the inflation uh, reality. There was a lot of uh, volatility under the surface uh, in uh, markets, so I think they're still processing what happened and you shouldn't try to read every uh, every detail as fitting together uh, in, uh, in a pattern. But I think much, much more than most FOMC meetings, as the beginning of the Fed's recognition um, that overheating is the issue uh, that it has, to, uh, it has to deal with going forward, and 
given that overheating has been a major concern uh, of mine, I'm glad to see that they have uh, that recognition. But uh, look, uh, at a certain point, Churchill talked about it not being the end, not being the beginning of the end, but maybe it maybe the being the end of the beginning. And I think with respect to recognizing that the economy is now in a very, very different kind of place where demand pressures are uh, a crucial issue, I think that's exactly what we have uh, seen, uh, seen here. And I was glad uh, to see in particular uh, the change in the dot plot, which uh, showed that uh, the basic implausibility in a labor short economy of rates being at zero out to 2024 is something that now a majority of the members of the FOMC uh, recognize. So, Larry, they get the issue now. I think it's fair to say they've said they get 13 of the 18 members think the risk on inflation is the upside. So they get the issue. But are they doing anything about that issue? Because they moved some dots on their plot, to be sure. Uh, but they didn't actually cut back on their bond purchase, $120 billion a year a month. As you pointed out, that's increasing the accommodation, much less touch the rates. And by the way, if anything, it's a little surprising. The rate in the, on the 10-year remained in the 1.5 range. And the equity markets, they sold off some, but it wasn't that dramatic. So are they doing anything about the fundamental underlying causes of this overheating, as you describe it? I think we're going to have to uh, wait, wait and judge that. Uh, an optimistic view would be that because they signaled that they were on the case, that was reassuring to everybody that the accident that people feared was less likely to happen. And that's why equities were relatively tranquil. That's why the 10-year came down. After all, part of what the 10-year was pricing in was uh, the risks I had been fearing, a uh, significant increase in inflation or the need for a major tightening at some point. So I think an optimistic view of those developments would be that, in fact, by changing expectations and changing their signals, that is policy in the monetary sphere, and they were rewarded for it. I, I think that optimistic view might be right. It might also be that markets, my old mentor Bob Rubin used to say, markets go up, markets go down, and we shouldn't be interpreting every relative movement too intensely days after uh, a, ma a major event. But look, obviously, we're going to have to see what happens on uh, the taper. I think most market participants saw this as probably bringing forward the moment when uh, the taper was going to uh, start uh, to happen. I think that's a, a positive thing. Uh, Frankly, I would have preferred it if the chairman had not uh, been as dismissive of the dot plot um, as he was uh, in his uh, in his press conference. But that's a that's a tactical uh, detail. We're going to have to see. This is a this is a long this is a long game. But um, you know, we're now in the second inning 
um, not in, not uh, still waiting for the first pitch. And I think that's a uh, that's a welcome that's a welcome development here. Larry, I certainly take your point about the danger of overinterpreting the markets and what they're telling us. But address one thing in particular, and that is the flattening of the yield curve. Because one of the things that happened this week was a pretty dramatic flattening of the yield curve. So it, it, the short end came up because the Fed certainly could drive that quite immediately. At the same time, the long end didn't. If anything came down, does that reflect the fact that the markets might think that maybe they are getting their arms around inflation? It, it reflects two things, and in just what proportions is hard to know. I think it reflects certainly an expectation that they may be getting their arms around uh, inflation. But, you know, inflation expectations moved hugely. It may also be that if you thought that we were going to need to have some kind of big collision between monetary policy and the economy, those kinds of collisions send long rates way up. And we probably have taken out a bit of the risk of uh, that kind of collision. So, and we've made the world probably a safer place and taken risk premiums out. So I think all of those things are contributors to uh, the the flattening of uh, the curve. But um, David, I've, I've learned in this that it's easy to form a beautiful theory around the market pattern um, and then have that pattern uh, dissipate on you two days uh, later. And so I think the more detailed the pattern one's commenting on, uh, the less confident one should be in prescribing a detailed theory. Okay, Larry, it's always great to end our week with you. That is our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. Going back to go forward, the important events of this week went beyond summit diplomacy and Fed adjustments. The week ended with Juneteenth, named for June 19, 1865, when federal troops entered Galveston, Texas, to announce that the Civil War was officially over and that all slaves in the state were free. It was the last state in the Union to receive word, and it was two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation had taken effect. Juneteenth, or Jubilee Day, has been commemorated by some Americans as far back as 1866, when black citizens in Texas held celebrations. It's been an official state holiday in Texas since 1980, and is now a holiday or a day of observation in 46 states. Still, a Gallup poll this month found that some 60% of Americans knew nothing at all or only a little bit about Juneteenth. It took the police killings of black citizens like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor last year to put it on the national agenda. And this week, this week, we made Juneteenth our 11th national holiday. There is no doubt that it is an important day in American history. But what does Juneteenth have to do with Wall Street and financial markets and business? Well, some of the most prominent corporations in the country have made it an official company holiday. Places like Twitter and the New York Times and Quicken Loans. And in the end, it's not so much about commemorating a day as it is making up for so much lost time in making sure that everyone is included in the workplace as well as in life. Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan says when he sought a way to measure that inclusion, he asked his fellow workers. Teammates came forward and said, why can't people have the kinds of conversations we have at work about 
the realities of being you know, of a specific ethnicity in America today, in case we have you know, black or Hispanic or a woman or a person with a, a disability, you know, why can't they have these conversations about what they mean? So we, we did that to help have those conversations outside our company. Meanwhile, we've been having a lot of conversations inside the company led by Tom Montag and many others that are just wonderful to get people thinking about it from not their standpoint, but the other person's standpoint. And that's very important too. I worked for one of the best and the most successful CEOs of his generation, Tom Murphy of Cap Cities. And I remember the day he came into the office and said that as he looked around at his senior management team, he realized we were leaving on the sidelines more than half of the brains and the talent because of the underrepresentation of women and people of color. No, this isn't about woke. It isn't even about doing the right thing. Juneteenth is a day to reflect on what we all need to do to include everyone in the effort to be our collective best. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.